Hi, everybody. I have some exciting news. I am launching a Substack. I know. I keep telling you how I'm not a writer, and I'm still not a writer, but I am going to be writing about reading over on Substack. The Substack is called Unstacked, and you can find it at tracythomas.substack.com. There will be free options every Friday. There'll be a bunch of weekly roundups, announcements, all the shit I'm into. And then if you want to upgrade yourself to the paid subscription, I'm going to have author interviews, bonus episodes, anticipated reads, book pairings, community chats, all sorts of stuff. So, If that sounds like something you'd be into, go to tracythomas.substack.com and join Unstacked. And of course, I've got a special offer for you. If you go to tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10, you get 10% off your first year membership of Unstacked. You have from now until April 4th to redeem. Again, that's tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10 for 10% off Unstacked. Okay, that's enough. Let's listen to this episode. Welcome to The Stacks, a podcast about books and the people who read them. I'm your host, Tracy Thomas, and our guest today is author Matteo Escarapur, whose debut novel, Black Buck, was the read with Jenna Pick on the Today Show in January and a New York Times bestseller. We talked today about writing satire, reader critique, and the ways that Matteo looked to other authors as inspiration before he ever wrote his book. The Stacks Book Club pick for February is The New Wilderness by Diane Cook, and we will discuss the book in detail on Wednesday, February 24th with Van Newkirk. If you love this podcast and want to be able to discuss books you read with other book lovers and generally believe in supporting the work of artists you appreciate, please consider joining the Stacks Pack on Patreon. That's a website that allows you to make a monthly contribution in exchange for perks like our virtual book club, discounts on merch, and shout outs on this show. If this sounds like you, please head to patreon.com slash the stacks and join. Here are some of the newest members of the Stacks Pack. Christine Weedner, Amy Stewart, Grace Pickering, Leah Beige, Erica, Heather Peter, Kate Carter-Brown, Sarah, Shannon Elliott, and Lauren Hurd. Thank you all so much for your continued support of my work and the stacks. Okay, now it's time for you all to hear from author Matteo Ascarapur. Hi, everyone. I'm so excited. I'm here today with Matteo Ascarapur, the author of Black Buck, the book that is, I don't know, everywhere. If you've not seen it yet, you're, you must have your eyes closed or something. I don't know. Matteo, welcome to the stacks. Tracy, I made it. You I'm made so it. happy to be here. You're, I mean, you're the first person who's ever wanted to come on this podcast. So thank you for appreciating what? the show. <laughs> what do you mean? I listen to this all the time and I'm like, oh, I can't wait to one day be able to get there and answer this snack question or whatever. Oh, good. So you're ready for this. We'll save it for later, but I'm excited yeah. that you thought about it because sometimes I ask that question and people answer everything around it, but the snack. And I'm like, I don't actually care where you write. I'm just con- concerned about are you eating goldfish or yes or no? <laughs> you know, like that's yeah, all I want to yeah. know. I okay, but you. we'll get there later. Let's talk about the book. 30 seconds or so. Tell us about Black Buck. Black Buck is about a young man named Darren. He's living in Bedside, Brooklyn with his mom, his girlfriend, his best friend. Um, and he's also working at a Starbucks in Midtown Manhattan. One day, this really suave white guy named Rhett Daniels comes in, and he's the CEO of a startup called Someone, S-U-M-W-N. And he says, you know, give me my drink. Darren, for some reason, sells him on another. 
and Rhett and Press invites him to the 36th floor, which is where his company's located. He invites Darren to join an elite sales team, and Darren reluctantly says okay, and he soon realizes he's not the only black salesman there. He's the only black person in the entire company. So he goes through hell and back to make it to the top. And once he's there, you know, he has power, status, and money. But he says, I don't want to be the token black guy. So he hatches a plan to help other people of color infiltrate America's tech startup sales teams, redefining what it means to be a minority in the workplace. Boom. It's like you've talked. Is that 30 seconds? I don't know. I cut some stuff out. Don't give any spoilers, but um, I feel like you've done that before. Talked about your book, maybe. I don't know. Yeah, just uh, just a couple dozen times. <laughs> okay, I want to talk about. Um, uh, there's a lot that I want to talk about in this book, so I'm going to try to keep my questions short. We'll see how this goes. First and foremost, I want to talk about audience because I've mm. heard you talk about and I've read things you've said about this book around you not really intending for it to be satire, at least when you started out. And I've also heard you talk about. Um, writing this for black audiences and if white folks are into it like cool enjoy come along on the ride i think or some some version of that and so my mm-hmm. question for you is like when you're writing something that is maybe not fully satire but satirical or humorous and you're talking about race and you're centering black characters but you know you live in america and you know white people are going to read it how yeah. do you navigate that humor and like to make sure that white people aren't laughing at us or that black black people feel seen in a certain way or like how how are you navigating that are you at all do you care like what is that yeah so that's a great question and you have definitely done your research tracy <laughs> um so for me what what made it all simple and helped me focus was knowing that i was writing for black people and I often extend it to black and brown people um, just due to the fact that, you know, we, we do have um, struggles and triumphs uh, specific to um, each other and our, and our own backgrounds. But uh, much of what we experience today sometimes overlaps, especially in the workplace or especially right in the prison system. Um, so for me, gaining that clarity of purpose on saying I am writing this for black people. I am writing this for people such as myself who have been in these white majority workplaces and broader environments um, allowed me to not pander mm-hmm. to anyone, to not to not even really consider the white gaze. Mm-hmm. And it gave me a freedom to write in a certain way where I'm not thinking about writing in mixed company. Right. If you know what of I course. mean, right? So it's like, uh, I, I'm not thinking like, oh, should I not say this joke because white people, you know, might not get it or even non-black people might not get it. Or should I not write this joke because they're watching and then they're going to be laughing at us rather than with us or X, Y, Z. I just didn't really think about them all that much, to be honest. Um, and it's funny because someone <laughs> who read the book said, hey, man, you know, you're, um, you're really putting white people through the ringer. Like, you know, why, why is, why is Darren taking that approach? And I said, listen, man, like, how do we speak? This was a black person. How do we speak when, when we're just with each other? That's what this book is. Um, But at the same time, um, as you mentioned, Tracy, I, I knew that white people would read this book and I welcomed it. But it's more so for them to come along the ride um, and for them to um, see Darren's story and also see the narrative and then ask themselves, what role do they play in it? And what do they what role do they play in the broader narrative of this nation and the fight for justice? Um, but at the same time, I'm not their tour guide. Right. <laughs> I'm not I'm not saying take my hand. Let me show you what it's like to be a black man in America. 
that wasn't the intention. Right. Uh, but focusing on black people um, helped me break out of tropes of just 400 pages of tragedy and trauma. Right. Right. There's so much joy in right. there. There's so much humor and there's so much absurdity at racism, right. you know, or, or, or at racism's uh, expense, because while it is dangerous and pervading and, and disastrous, it's also really absurd right. in so many forms. OK, but so let me ask you this sort of follow up question then. Well, let me ask you this mini follow up question and then the big one. Is your editor black? No, no. Okay. My editor is, is non-black, but a woman of color. A woman of color. So yeah. how do you navigate? You sit down, you write this book, you sell it to HMH, you work on it, you do your revisions, you're working with an editor, you're working with someone who is not in, you know, who's not identified as black. How do you then negotiate that? Especially knowing that editors' jobs are to make books sellable to broad audiences, right? Like that's like mm -hmm. one of their huge jobs. So how do you navigate your want and desire to eliminate the white gaze from your work with this other outside force that is working for like broad appeal? You know, like mm -hmm. how is that something that is even difficult or was it something that just sort of happens easily? It wasn't difficult. And it goes back to our first conversation. When, when I spoke with her, I felt deeply that she understood what I was doing mm. and wanted to bring out more of that rather than um, change it or transmogrify it into something else that was more hideous or more palatable to other people. So at Got no it. point during the process, and I'll just give a shout out to Pilar Garcia Brown at HMH. At no point during the process did I ever feel like Pilar was trying to make my book more commercial mm. or more this or that. It, it, in every instance and with every edit, it felt as though she was trying to bring out my intentions further and, and sharpen them and also help me to be um, a more empathetic writer as well. She sharpened, excuse me, she, she, um, she smoothed out some rough edges mm. and, and the book has enough rough edges, right? And, and sharp <laughs> points that can poke many people in different ways. Right. Um, so it just goes back to our first uh, conversation and I trusted her and she trusted me. Um, she didn't come in here saying, well, you know, I don't really get this black thing. Are you sure you want it? Never. There was never that. She trusted awesome. me as the expert of my book, um, as did many other people at HMH and my agent. So um, I'm just grateful for it. That's beautiful. I feel like that's not always how people have experiences in publishing, especially mm -hmm. black people and other people of color. So it's great to hear that that was something like you felt supported in your work. I love that. Yeah. And, and to keep it real on that point, I know you didn't ask for this, but you know, the, the title did come into question though, right? On the, on the flip side, the title did come into question where some people said, Hey, you know, we, we get the historical connotation and it makes some people uncomfortable. Can you explain, or can you tell us um, the background to that title and how you chose it? So after I did that, um, it, it was no issue. But I will say, yeah, that, that was a point um, where people wanted a little bit more information. Did you always know that you wanted the title to be Black Buck? Or was that something that – were there other options that were being floated around? There was, um, there was an original title, which was actually called Fixing the Game. Mm. Um, but at some point, I was like, eh, I don't know if this really captures what is going on with this book. And then I was going to call it 
buck. And then I said, why not just black buck? It hits on so many points. But beyond that, it, it, it captures the essence of what's going on in the narrative of uh, a young black man bucking the system while right. at the same time, you know, potentially being viewed as that historical black buck um, right. that was going to burn down the plantation and steal right, the right, women right. and the pigs. You know what I'm saying? So right. and th- th- there's other um, definitions of it in terms of black wealth, right? Black buck. And he is a black man renamed buck. Um, but yeah, so, so that spoke to me most uh, deeply and sincerely. And after I, I explained that there were no more questions. Yeah, I love that. Okay, I have one more question about white people and then I'm going to get off of it. But (laughs) the reason I have so many questions about this, and I'll just be really straight up, is that I, as you know, I'm on Bookstagram and I've read a lot of reviews from other folks and other people's opinions, you know, after I finished the book. And I, you know, with, with something that is satirical, even if that wasn't your original intention, I feel like people get it or they miss it. Mm -hmm. Like, and, and like that goes for me too. Like I read, um, what's that George Schuyler book? Um, Oh, Black No More is it? Black No More. Yes. And that's a satire. And like some of that, I was like, I'm so confused. I don't get it. Like, where's the joke? So like, this is not, I, your book totally worked for me. I was Mm -hmm. all in on the humor and I like got it, but like some satire doesn't work for me. So like, I understand people who don't, who don't get it or aren't quite sure what the joke is or what Mm -hmm. the, what the exaggeration is. So and because your book is about race, I'm obsessed with this idea that it was like picked by Jenna Bush Hager and like all these white women are reading it. And like, that's <laughs> really interesting to me. And so normally I don't focus so much on the white gaze, but like your book is kind of positioned in this really interesting place in my mind being satire and being like a today show book club book and then (laughs) like knowing that you didn't plan for it to be like you plan to write this book for black people and then seeing it be positioned in the world like and seeing so many white women like being like Mm -hmm. i read this book Mm -hmm. and so i'm just really interested in your feelings and thoughts about that kind of intersection because also just to tack on to my non-question question which is that I remember some, I can't remember where it was, but Ta-Nehisi Coates after Between the World and Me came out and got really popular. He sort of had a reckoning, he said, where he was wondering why so many white people were loving his book. Mm-hmm. And like, because he intended it, you know, as a letter to his son and also like as something for black folks and then having it have this huge success and with so many white people, he was like, what did I write? Like, why is this so resonant for them? And I'm wondering if any of that feels resonant to you, like especially having it be picked again, like by Jenna Bush and like be on the Today Show and be like really lauded by so many white people. I'm just wondering, what is that? Do you reckon with that? Or are you just like, great, yay? Mm-hmm. That's a lot, Tracy. That's it's a, a lot. lot I know. That was a lot. <laughs> no, no, you might have to edit it. I'm going to try to try to not okay. be too long-winded um, while also hitting those points. So I don't know why Ta-Nehisi Coates was surprised um, with, with many um, works by Black people, for Black people. Um, white and non-Black people are drawn to them because there's a certain level of voyeurism of let me see how they're talking about themselves or the world or us um, Mm -hmm. amongst themselves. So I I knew that white people and again, non-black people would read this book and um, be able to take away a lot from it, even if that wasn't, even if those people weren't who I had in mind, right? Two things can exist at once where I wrote this for black people and I am happy that white and non-black people are reading it. Mm -hmm. Um, So 
that that's that's what's going on in my mind but in in my heart um it's the same I, i'm happy about it but what makes me happiest is the fact that it's not just white and non-black people who are celebrating black buck black people yes. are rallying around this book in such an intense and extreme way the messages that i get from so many um black men women um, and other identifying individuals um, of all ages who say, you wrote about me. Yeah. I've been here. I've been down. It might not be one-to-one. Their environment might have not been a workplace. It could have been um, a predominantly white institution. It could have been a sports team. It could have been a religious org- organization. So the fact that these people feel seen, it's, it's huge for me. Every day that I get one of these messages. Um, in terms of the satire, Tracy, I blurred so many lines in this book that sometimes <laughs> you don't know what's real and what's what, right? There's a right. damn pig, a pig in the office, right? That's right. a little spoiler. That's the most of a spoiler I'll give, right? Okay. There's a pig in the office. That's a little absurd. Um, I did this all on purpose of blurring these lines. Um, and the people who take the time to dissect them and put in the effort to get to the end, even though I understand for many people it's difficult. For many people of all backgrounds, there are things that are triggering. But I truly believe that if people make it to the end, they will see my intentions and they will see the broader messages because it's not just one message. But for those who don't get it or for the, for those who are turned off by the use of certain language um, or see that a woman like Jenna Bush is praising the book and say, oh, how black could this book actually be, right? Or, or limiting what it means to be black or to write a black book. Um, that's okay. Because something that I've learned almost more than anything else from this process, Tracy, is that authors are not entitled to the benefit of the doubt from readers. Hmm. We are not entitled for readers to read our entire books. We are not entitled for readers to, to give us rigorous feedback or rigorous review. We are, we are not entitled um, for readers to do a deep dive and understand every single thing so that they can see that um, many of us, or at least me in this instance, had very positive intentions. Mm-hmm. But um, for those who don't get the satire or read the book and are like, yeah, not for me or detest the book, I still thank them for reading it um, because as of now, that's a very small minority, and I'm just mm-hmm. grateful for the outpouring of, of love. Yeah. Yeah. I want to talk about Black readers now. I know we yeah. spent a little bit of time on white readers, and I think I'm done with that for now. We'll see sure. if anything else comes up. I want to talk about Black readers. Um, I Well, first of all, we have a little biography overlap. We both went to NYU. I didn't know that. What? Yeah, I just heard that on an interview. Someone you mentioned that you went to NYU. That's what's yeah. Up. Yeah. Okay. So we're uh, fighting violets slash bobcats. You know, whatever whichever, we were, whichever yeah. you want to be. Yeah. Um, so love that. And I feel like I'm also from the Bay Area. So I, mm. though your book takes place in New York, I know many people who have worked in startups on both coasts. Mm. And I really feel like you captured that, like, I'm going to try to be nice, but I'm, it's not really nice. That like <laughs> earnest obsession with like changing the world in a way that's like so icky to me, like just Mm. like truly icky. It's like you work at Instacart, like great. (laughs) Thank you for delivering my groceries, but also like you don't pay your drivers. So like, what are we talking about? And I think Mm. that you kind of tap on that in the startup culture um, at someone. And 
And I also think you tap on like obviously the racism in these predominantly white spaces. And so, and I know that some of that overlaps with your biography, having worked in startup culture and sales. And I'm wondering like how much did you have to add to enhance it to make it feel satirical or not, maybe not satirical, but to make it feel like fiction to separate it from the truth of your experience? Or was it, is this pretty much what your experience was? Hmm. I mean, obviously you're not Darren. I don't want people to think like you're Darren or like, uh, and there's a lot of fiction in the book, but as far Mm -hmm. as like that being a black person in those spaces and the like earnest superhero of like Facebook type gung-ho-ness. I, I just wonder how much of that felt like extra versus what you lived. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so you're right. I'm not Darren and Darren's experience isn't mine one-to-one. I, I was very intentional about that from the beginning and that if I were to write about my life, um, I would have become too obsessed with the blow by blow of my own history um, mm. and trying to render everything accurately to a T that I don't think it would have been as relatable to many people who have been in these types of scenarios or environments. Um, as for the world of startups and sales specifically, <laughs> no, I didn't really have to add anything. If anything, <laughs> Tracy, I had to remove a lot. I mean, the first draft was 168,000 words, right? Whoa. What what you What's read the was final? about- it's about 110, 113,000 okay. words. So I okay. had to cut out almost like a whole book, basically. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I had added so many things related to st- sales and the world of startups, but it was just too much because for many people who come to this book, they're unfamiliar with those worlds. And it would have just become too muddled if I would have included absolutely every part um, of those environments that I wanted to include. Mm. In terms of my own experience, right? I didn't have the overt um, racialized experience that Darren did in the workplace. There was definitely, it feels weird to even say casual racism yeah, or passive racism. I know what you it's mean. More, you, know what it, you know you mean, right? Well, many of us call it microaggressions where it's innocuous or mundane to the point where you're like, did that actually happen? But in your heart, it feels like the world is splitting before you because you're like, whoa. I am the only black or brown person um, in the sea of white. And if I were to speak up, then there would be um, 50 or 100 or even just 10 people who would gaslight me. Mm-hmm. Um, but I did experience overt and bizarre racism outside of the workplace, especially when I was younger in the environment that I grew up in, um, the sports teams that I played on and so forth. So I wanted to translate that experience into the workplace Um not to make it hyperbolic, but to show and express how it feels for so many of us in these instances. Because it's not always someone saying, oh, do I need to translate this pitch into Ebonic so that you get it? Sometimes right. it is just people rolling up and be like, hey, brother. You're like, yo, brother. Or what's up, my man? My man, who are you talking to? You know, Or yeah. we, see, we also see it in the book where in the beginning, it's funny because everyone's saying, and then anyone ever tell you that you look like Malcolm X? Then oh it's like Martin gosh. Luther King. Then it's Dave Chappelle. Then by the end, it's Drake. I almost yeah. thought about throwing Oprah in there or <laughs> something like that to really hit home the point. But uh. the people who read that book and white readers told me as well, where at first it's funny. They're laughing. But then by the fourth or fifth time, they're like, does this actually happen? And if so, what does it feel like for the person on the receiving end? And the last right. thing I'll say to this point, because I feel as though I gave you an incomplete answer. 
what I feel like resonates with many white people who read this book and send me, Tracy, I've gotten so many emails from 60 plus year old white women who say this book really spoke to me deeply. What I believe resonates with them most deeply is that they are seeing race and these issues rendered in a way that they're not familiar with. Mm -hmm. And it's putting them through the ringer, Mm. but they feel as though they've learned a lot by the end to help them become better allies rather than putting a performative black square on Instagram. So I think that that's the draw for many of them. And when they do reach out to me, I respond, you know, I'm kind because I am thankful for them taking the time for having read the book. They didn't have to do that. Right. I wonder, I'm sure there's a huge difference in the kinds of emails you get and the things that resonate with people depending on age and race and like location 100%. and stuff. Like I'm sure it's just like, like <laughs> some people are like, oh my God, I love the pig. And then some people are like, uh, oh my God, I love the this. And you're like, wow, I could tell you exactly who you are, where you live and everything about you by which part of the book you liked or didn't like. Tracy, you've seen the reviews. Many, many black bookstagrammers are like, wow, this spoke to me so deeply, but I would have caught a body. Like I would not, I would not have put up with Clyde. I would have killed him. Or there are other people who are like, I've been in this scenario and I know what it feels like to be shocked into silence at the same time. So that's me. You're you're exactly right. The, the responses do range. I also, there was, maybe this was in the LA times piece on you. There's this great quote you have about a trip to Italy and I didn't write it down and I should have, but do you remember, do you know what I'm talking about? The line? I remember. Um, it's that the most dangerous thing any person of color can do is forget they're a person of color. Yeah. That like might be in, paraphrasing. In an unfamiliar, okay. in an unfamiliar yeah, place in an unfamiliar or something. unfamiliar territory, exactly. Yeah. And that was really like, I think that that's like such a, even though that has something is not in the book and it has to do with, I guess, a personal experience that you had. It speaks to it though. It That is the book to me. Like mm-hmm. that really encapsulates everything that is the book because I think so much of it is Darren forgetting who he is and then remembering mm-hmm. and then forgetting again and remembering and it's like the sunken place a thousand percent the sunken mm-hmm. place okay i want to talk about this book coming out right now in the beginning of 2021 you write the book i think you said in 2018 you yeah. you know books take a while they have to go through all the editing whatever so you're sitting on this book and the summer of 2020 happens and you're a black man, um, and you know you have this thing coming that speaks to a lot of this. And mm-hmm. then there's also like you know the crazy white supremacy part of what's going on in America also throughout the summer and all of the like you know I think what that f- guy that I'm not going to name on CNN you know the white lash or whatever. Mm-hmm. What is it like sitting on this, knowing that this thing that you've created is going to enter the world at this time? Yeah. Um, it's tough because when everything was happening in 2020, right, and everything, meaning these murders, these public executions and HDTV mm-hmm. while the world is locked down. And they, they can turn away with it, but they can turn away from it, excuse me, but it's harder to than ever before. Mm-hmm. With all of that going on, I got pulled into the undertow of it. And I just, you know, it, it hit me really hard um, because it's, it's just cumulative, as you know, where it's not just 2020, <laughs> it's 1920, it's mm-hmm. 1820, mm-hmm. 1620. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And this summer, you know, especially after watching the execution of George Floyd, I was like, damn, you know, when is this going to stop? Is it ever going to stop? And then after sitting on that, sitting with it for a couple of weeks, I mean, I'm not going to go into it, but I got like paranoid around that time. I thought about getting a piece. I'm not going to lie. I was like, <laughs> like, especially like where I come from and some things that I was saying on Facebook and the, the reaction I was getting, um, especially from white people. I was like, yo, should I get a piece to like protect myself? <laughs> and then I was like, that's stupid. I was like, chill out. What are you talking about? Like, you know, you're inviting bad, bad stuff. Um, but after I, I, I worked through all of that, especially with the help of some friends, um, like my friend Candace, who wrote Everybody Looking, the YA mm. novel. I believe you read it, right? She's, a, she's a close homie because um, she's part of the uh, colony, just like Jason Reynolds and, and those mm. folks. Um, Jason. Jason, Jason I know. I know. Ah. I thought about it. Uh, so <laughs> um, after, after working through that, I was like, okay, I got this book. And people all around me are like, wow, can you believe it? That is coming out during this time. Like this is going to sell a bunch of copies. This is, you know, I was like, yeah, I'm not really thinking about the commercial aspect. That's cool. I mean, I always hoped that it would sell and do well and resonate with people and be relevant. Um, but I'm writing about this from the perspective of, you know, a person in 2018. And there are other people who have written about this in the 1960s and 50s. So I'm not writing for a moment, but what made me feel good is that hopefully this book could help facilitate some of the tougher conversations that are happening right now. But beyond that, allow people who may feel alone um, and who have been in scenarios like Darren to know that um, they should never, ever be made to feel less than. And they have the same right just as much as anyone else, um, no matter who they are, to chase success and in some cases achieve it. Yeah. Okay. Let's take a quick break and then we'll be right back. Sounds good. Taking care of your health isn't always easy, but it should be at least simple. That's why for the last three plus years, I have been drinking AG1 every day, no exceptions. It's just one scoop mixed in water once a day, every day, and it makes me feel nourished and strong enough to tackle whatever else might come my way. That's because each serving of AG1 delivers my daily dose of vitamins, minerals, pre and probiotics, and a lot more. It's a powerful, healthy habit that's also powerfully simple. The nutritional insurance that AG1 provides has been vital to keeping me productive and focused. It helps me cover my bases in just about the time it takes to fill a glass of water, scoop in one scoop of AG1, and then drink it. So I don't know, 75 seconds? With the perfect mix of vitamins, probiotics, and nutrients from Whole Foods, I'm not stuck trying to assemble it all by myself, which would have considerably worse results. AG1 saves me all the time and hassle, and it has made such a difference in my overall mood and especially my gut health, among many other things. But don't take my word for it. Go ahead and try AG1. Let me know what you think. Whether you notice you're needing more nutrient support than you're used to, or you just need an edge for a tough workout, AG1 can be the ticket. If there's one product I had to recommend to elevate your health, it's AG1, and that's why I've partnered with them for so long. If you want to take ownership of your health, start with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3, K2, and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase exclusively at drinkag1.com slash the stacks. That's drinkag1.com slash the stacks. Check it out. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. 
jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio, and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. This episode is brought to you in part by Noom. Forget one-size-fits-all diets. With Noom, you get a personalized weight loss plan that's tailored to your lifestyle. No food is off-limits. Enjoy your favorites while discovering healthier habits. Noom's users love the flexible approach, blending psychology and biology to help you lose weight in a way that's sustainable for you. And great news for foodies. Noom just released the Noom Kitchen Cookbook with 100 delicious, healthy recipes. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M. Com. Grab your copy of The Noom Kitchen wherever books are sold. Okay, we're back. Um, I want to just, before we kind of transition more into your process, I wonder if there's anything... So I, I think some people on podcasts ask this question of like, what do you want readers to take away from your book? And I sort of hate that question. So mm-hmm. I've come up with my own version of it that I'm mm-hmm. sort of working through, which is what do you think readers should keep in mind while they're reading your book? If anything, Ooh. Ooh. this is a good one because I am <laughs> used to that. I am used to that other one. What do you want? When you and you when you were saying that, I was like, "Yo, I already sort of used the response that I typically yeah. get for that." So well, that's I- the thing. It's like we talk about the book for twenty minutes, and people tell me what they think about their book and what they hope that their book does, and all of that. And it's like to ask that question again is sort of like, "Well, was I listening?" Like I sure. have been listening, so I'm just curious, like. It's sort of like, what's your helpful, helpful hint for the reader as they try to crack your book or whatever else that means to you? Yeah, that um, feeling is the purpose, right? Mm-hmm. I'm not looking to really uh, change your mind. I'm looking more so to have you feel something and not just one thing, but many things. So if you are going through the book and you are happy um, when, when Darren's on the rise, great. If you are upset when other things are transpiring, great. If you are sad at certain points, great. That was the purpose. I wanted you to feel something because I believe that that feeling is going to stick with you longer than anything that you think about in terms of the Mm, book. Yeah. So, yeah. And then I have one more question about the book and then I really will get off it. I I have to know how you named your characters because there's one character in particular whose name just really spoke to my heart. Um, Mm. And so I'm just curious how you came up with the names. Can I ask who who was that character? Well, yes, I can tell you, but I feel like if you're a listener of the podcast, you should know because it's from my favorite book and movie, Gone with the Wind, <laughs> Rhett. And I was wondering if Rhett Daniels was at all related to Rhett Butler in any way. No, but let me let me tell you something that this man <laughs> told me. He said, "Hold on, man, this might be a stretch, but Rhett Daniels Rhett Butler from Gone with the Wind and Lee Daniels directed The Butler. So is that how you came up with the name? I said, nah, man, but I like that. Another really one, good. a guy, a, another interview, a guy said, okay, Mateo, Darren Bender, and he changes Darth Vader? I, I said, nah, man, but I like that too. So um, the names are important for most people, just to run you through a couple, right? Darren, there's there's no real significance in terms of his first name, but his last name in Spanish means to sell. Right. So it's a foreshadowing of what would happen. For someone like Clyde, 
Clyde Reynolds Moore III. His surname is the combination of two of the uh, white enslavers from The Roots from 1977. Mm. So Mr. Reynolds or Master Reynolds and Master Moore. And that's Mm. just giving you the vibe of Clyde a little bit. Um, You have someone, especially the, uh, the black folk who come in later in the book, Rose Butler. Rose was named after a 19 year old woman who was hanged in Washington Square Park in Manhattan for arson. And you see Rose as this fiery character coming with the heat and sort of just slapping the hell out of Darren. Um, A few other people, Ellen Craft, that was a a woman who was white passing and she escaped. She was a runaway enslaved individual. Same thing with Jacob Green, who's also in the Happy Campers, which if you don't know what the Happy Campers are, listeners, you're just going to have to read the book. Read the book. Um, Yeah, Brian Grimes. Um, the, the enslaved man who ran away was actually named William Grimes, but I didn't want to change his first name just because I liked it. I like Brian. Mm-hmm. Um, so there are significance to many of the names in there and there's a lot but of other Rhett Easter Butler. eggs. No, nah, Rhett, um, no, nah, there's no real significance with Rhett. That just came to me and, and Rhett Daniels sounds like this could be an actor in GQ and he is that suave, good looking type of white character where you're like, he's not that bad. Like Matthew McConaughey or someone yeah. like him. Matthew Conaghy, who turns out is terrible, but yeah, yeah, on the like on the face, not. he seems like a nice guy, and I yeah. think he hangs out with a lot of black people. But yeah, yeah. Anyways, he has a lot of black friends, as they say. Ah, uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I want to talk a little bit about you and your process, and you know, this is a question that I know you've been preparing for, which is, how do you like to write? Where are you? How many hours a day? Is there music? Are you in your house if it's not a pandemic? Are there snacks and beverages? Are there candles? Are there rituals? Give me the vibe. Mm. So I actually haven't prepared for this. I just knew, I just remembered an inkling. So now I'm just going to have to give it to you. Uh, I write in a corner of my apartment facing the wall, facing a white wall. And in the past, there would be nothing in front of me, but now I've since put up um, a couple of reminders and um, a poster of Muhammad Ali staring at himself in a mirror while training, oh. um, just to remind me that it all happens in the training process and during practice, not so much when you actually get to the stage, right? Practice. Um, yeah, practice. <laughs> We're talking practice. Uh, so that's that's where I write. I write with a, a very uncomfortable chair that I've had for years. And I think of um, the sculptor Rodin and he in um, Letters to a Young Poet, which was uh, written by Rain, Rainier Marie Rilke. Um, I'm completely butchering that name. Rodin tells him, you know, you can't sit in a comfy chair as you work. Like you're not here trying to relax. You're trying to work. And I thought about that and that, that stuck with me. I write during the day. Um, my process starts really the night before where I tell myself you're going to write the next day so that when I wake up, there are no if, ands, or buts. It's just automatic in the same way that I'm going to eat, in the same way that I am going to take a shower. Uh, when I wake up, I'm not going to run you through the whole process because it's pretty, it's pretty in-depth, but there's meditation, there are waffles, there is my, my beverage of choice, yerba mate, which I, I'm almost always drinking. Um, and then... After watching two to three hours worth of music videos or movie trailers and dancing around, (laughs) then it's time to hit it. I'm finally ready. And I write for a couple hours, you know, two to three, sometimes more, but typically just two to three. And then I'll either have um, other engagements or in a pre-COVID world, I would have tried to relax outside, see some friends. 
So that's, uh, that's part of what's going on. Yeah. But when I was writing this book, it was different because I was consulting with tech startups and I was actually mm. in your area of the States. I was in the Bay area like six times in 2019. Wow. Yeah. Where in the Bay area? Uh, SF and specifically, um, Soma, I believe was the, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. was the neighborhood. Yeah. South of market. Exactly. There you go. See, look at me. I'm a real Bay area girl. I'm from Oakland though. So. Oh, there not we go. a city girl. Anyways, um, okay. I love the waffles. I love that you watch music videos because you're like the only person who still watches music videos. So <laughs> what? For you. I'm on YouTube, man. They're out there. I guess. I don't know. I miss like MTV days, like TRL, <sighs> the good days. Um, okay. I also I've heard tale that you tried to write two other books before this book mm -hmm. and you were writing about other things that weren't necessarily like your exact or not exact but related to your experience mm -hmm. and then you had some sort of an epiphany or felt ready to write this book what were the other two books about yeah the the other two books um were just different versions of the same idea and okay. I, I did write them they, they were for me talking about training or practice and they were for me the training ground um to figure out what it meant to write and be a writer which are two things that i'll always be figuring out but mm -hmm. i was more so um ruminating on them back then but those two books they were actually ya and i didn't know that i was writing ya until i pitched an agent the first manuscript and she said you need to age down the character and this is ya which was actually bad advice to be honest um it was like horrible like you need to write what you want to write and then keep characters however um old you want them to be and you know really don't listen to all this other advice from people other than yourself like right. stop it um those two books though they were um somewhat tangential um or related to my own experience they're about a young man um who felt as though he was an other some someone like Darren in this mm -hmm. workplace. And then he basically finesses his way into a volunteer program in Kenya. And he goes over there to, <laughs> you're, you're laughing. You're like, what? That's crazier than black book. Um, <laughs> is this also he, like uh, a funny book or is this a serious book? No, it's a serious book. It's pretty serious. Um, I thought it was yeah. like another satire type vibe. And no, I was thinking no, no. like, oh my God, it's I can't a, wait. I love this. <laughs> it's a lot more. You no, know, these two books will never see the light of day, but it's a lot more no. serious than Black Book. And he gets into this, um, this volunteer program where he is working at an orphanage. And part of why he went over to Kenya on the face, it was to just build up his resume, you know, because he, he's in college at this point. But mm. the real reason was to figure out what it means to be black, but on the global scale, you know, because he knew what it felt like being a young black man in the States, but he wanted to better understand what it meant in relation to other people. And in his mind, he was going to go to one of the quote unquote blackest parts of the world, you know, Africa and specifically Kenya. So there's a lot more, but yeah, those two books are never coming out. So that's all the folks will get. That's it, a teaser. Maybe yeah. they'll, maybe parts of them will appear in your future work. Who knows? Maybe. Um, how, so you started writing the book in 2018. Do you mm -hmm. remember what sort of stuff you were watching, reading, listening to while you were writing the book? Yeah. Um, around the time when I came up with the idea, you know, you, you brought up that epiphany, Tracy, that was November, 2018. And it was through the help of many things, but chiefly reading on writing by Stephen King. Mm. Um, he's just no nonsense, non-esoteric, um, blunt, 
uh, advice for writing really spoke to me in a way that a lot of this like established and institutional guidance for becoming a writer doesn't. Mm -hmm. And I feel like a, a lot of that works against would-be writers because you feel as though you have to write in a certain way for a certain type of people or go to the right schools. And a lot of that is just rooted in the canon, mm -hmm. which is being changed right now. So around the time that uh, I was reading on writing. I was watching this documentary on the Black Panthers and I was just really, really fired up. And I was like, yo, I'm about to write a book about elite black salespeople who blow up a bunch of shit. <laughs> and, and I was like, actually, okay. You know, I refined that idea over time, but I was reading a variety of things. Um, I was reading some Philip Roth. Um, I like Philip Roth a lot. I think that um, him and Toni Morrison are two of the smartest people to have ever written. Um, Toni Morrison, obviously, you know, being ahead in many ways, yeah. just because of who she is and, and what she had to do in order to, to write these masterpieces. Um, I was watching a lot. It's just, it's really hard to even it's say. It's hard to remember. Yeah, it's hard <laughs> to remember. Um, I read The Sellout, but I read that before I actually started writing Black Buck because I remember specifically that it was giving me um, – giving me the confidence that I needed to write something that would push the envelope mm -hmm. um, in, in a similar way to what, what Paul Beatty did. Not exactly right. one-to-one -one because that book is crazy. Um, <laughs> I like so, that satire. I got that one. You got that one. Okay. Yeah. For some I people that like, hard, what is a lot this? of people did not get that book and they were like, this, this is, <laughs> this is crazy. Um, I, I read behold the dreamers by Mbolem <laughs> okay. um, I love that book. Uh, black docker by Usman Semben. It's uh, it's a hard book to find, but I really enjoyed that tar baby by uh, Tony Morrison heads of the colored people by Nafisa mm. Thompson spires, my homie. So um, of just a lot. Papillon. I liked that French book um, about that uh, inmate who escapes um, there was a lie, the intuitionist, which was actually acquired by my agent when she was an editor. Um, mm. and, and is of course a Colson Whitehead book, uh, Friday black by Nana. If he hollers, mm. let him go by Chester Himes. There's just so much, but beyond what I was reading, I was going to a ton of readings, mm. um, all the time, you know, in New York city, just to sort of through osmosis, get the energy of, of these people right. who were on stage and just trying to picture myself on stage as well one day being able to speak to audiences and that's why you know you and i joke around with it but i did have the stacks as a podcast that i wanted to be on because mm -hmm. i've listened to folks like jason on here or kiesa layman i remember specifically um laying down in prospect park listening to kiesa layman and and he talked him talking about his guilty read which for mm -hmm. me is my same guilty it's the same guilty read for me <laughs> so when he said that i was like he said it. Um, oh I remember where I was listening to Jason. And then, of course, yeah, Jesse and all these other people on here. So being on here um, is a milestone that I wanted to hit. And thanks for having me. You're going to make me cry. I'm just, that <laughs> makes me so happy. I, get I mean, so you're doing a lot, you know, and like there are homies out here, you know, and, and I'm not going to get on this tip for long, but I tell some homies like Reggie, right, from Reggie Reads, oh, or Joy from dearest. Smile, It's Joy, or Tache from Books on the Yell, or even Achilles. You know, Reggie says, y'all are the rock stars to us. And I say, Reggie, you are all the rock stars to me because <laughs> you are all coming out with a lot more unafraid and, and rigorous um, analysis of these works than other people in the so-called establishment. And yeah. most of you um, are just unafraid, and you keep it real. Um, 
So again, it's just a, a joy to be interacting with all of you and to, to consider you all my peers. Oh, I love that. That's so nice. And I, you know, always shout out to Reggie because Reggie was the first Reggie. person who ever believed in my podcast that wasn't really? related to me. Yeah. We like connected over, I, I posted something on Valentine's day, 2018 before the podcast ever existed about, um, stamp from the beginning. And it was something that was like, happy Valentine's day to like, fighting racism or something like mm. silly and he just loved it and we started dming and he's been my like earliest champion and always a champion of the show so i just love reggie so much and i love that you know him and love him as well um oh well, i i am curious if any of the author talks that you went to stick out in your mind as being like particularly like particularly resonated with you or like you know, because right now there's so many author events that are happening online where people are able to hear authors speak that they wouldn't necessarily be able to. So if there's anyone that you feel like was particularly inspiring to you just to get on people's radar, if they ever see their name pop up, like hosting an event or anything like that. Yeah, a couple. Um, one that jumps out to me is Morgan Jerkins. Morgan mm -hmm. also helped me out in my career. She is um, someone who helped me um, launch in my career as an essayist. Right. I've written a lot of essays and Morgan was um, the first person to say, hey, you know, I'm editing an anthology for Medium. Would you like to contribute? And mm -hmm. she opened up my eyes to a lot and, and gave me the confidence to go and pitch and place a lot more essays. So thank you to Morgan. But what I, <laughs> what I loved most about um, Morgan's event, and I, I'd been to a couple before we actually became um, friends. She was at Housing Works. And she was just so unabashed and just, she kept it a buck. And she told the audience how she took a gummy, I think in California or somewhere on her tour, like a weed gummy and ordered lobster and just, and just treated herself. Her, her just keeping it um, so real really spoke to me. Um, who else? Um, another was Kiesa Lehman. I actually saw him in conversation with Morgan Jerkins at the Brooklyn Museum and what spoke to me, obviously, you know, Kiese oh, cool. is just who he is. I consider him to really be like the Muhammad Ali of the um, literary industry at this point. He he says what he wants. He's he, he's vulnerable. Um, he just speaks with so much rhythm every time that you're like, this is embedded in his DNA um, because it is yeah. so hard to speak like that if you're trying. Um, but yeah, what spoke to me about that event was um, yeah. he was just really vulnerable. And I, I believe he got even teary eyed on stage in front of so yeah. many people. And that vulnerability is something that has stayed with me and something that I try to um, always carry with me in my own events or these interviews. And there are so many people, and sometimes it's not even just because of the reading, but because of interactions I had with them at the end of the reading. Victor Laval um, he spoke to me at the end of his reading. What I used to do, Tracy, to be honest, is I would wait. I'd be the last person in line while they're like signing books or doing something. And I'd ask, I'd ask them for some time. Yeah. And sometimes they would oblige me. And Victor Laval, um, before I chose my agent, he gave me some key advice and just some advice that I really needed to hear at the time. And I've never spoken to him since. He likely doesn't know who I am, but that affected me deeply. So those are just some, some, People, I mean, I met Nafisa Thompson Spires at Weeksville um, when she was reading. I didn't even catch her reading because I had to jump, but we sat next to each other. And, you know, then 
fast forward in time, mm. she's hosting my launch event with me at Greenlight Brooklyn. She's someone I consider a friend, someone who I consider the a, a model of someone oh in God. the literary space that you know I want to follow in many ways. So the the connective tissue between all of these people and so yeah. so many more is that it feels as though they are being their authentic selves as, as often as they can. And that they are giving of themselves so deeply and that they mm. are being vulnerable and not trying to pander. And that is something that I, I try to do with, with all of these interactions mm. and also try to move with grace. Yeah. I love that so much. I, it's true. I've definitely, I've seen events with almost all of those people and obviously mm. TSA is, uh, someone I consider a friend now too and just think he's so wonderful and he's so tender and vulnerable and caring and just mm -hmm. like what a Same. what a role model I think um at least for me um okay let's talk about we're gonna wrap up but just a few little things before before I let you go which is and you can tell me to fuck off and leave you alone and say my book just came came out stop pressuring me but do you know what comes next for you yeah yeah I do um, so I am working on another book. I'm not working on it right now because I'm so focused on promo for black book. Um, but yeah, I, I know what that's going to be. Um, mm -hmm. I'm also working on bringing black book to the screen. Um, as of this podcast, when we're recording it, um, no news has been announced, but maybe it will be by the time it comes out. Um, and, and aside from that, what kind of news, like what, like, casting news? um no not casting but more so the medium that the book will okay. take shape as on okay. screen and the people that i'm working Got with it. um and that's something that okay. i've been sitting on for like a year to be honest for the most part yeah okay. so it's been a minute um aside from that i'm just focused on new opportunities to interact with readers and and other types of readers and putting my energy into getting the book in the hands of the right people at the right time. Love that. And then for, for your readers who have read Black Buck, loved Black Buck, love what you're doing, what sort of stuff would you, rec what other books would you recommend to them that are maybe in conversation with Black Buck? Not necessarily the same thing, but something that you think speaks to or is connected to it in some way. The Spook Who Sat by the Door oh, by Sam Greenlee, without a doubt. That, I don't I read know it, that. I read it only last August. And I was like, yo, my man <laughs> wrote this in 1969 and we're doing almost the same thing. Wow. The wow. same thing about someone bucking the system from the inside out, satire, absurdity, um, intensity. Woo. Sam Greenlee, man. Um, rest in peace. He, he did his thing. Um, How to Make a Slave by Gerald Walker. I recently read that. That also spoke deeply to me and resonated with me in, in the context of Black Buck because he is using humor to underscore the horror of what it's like to be his specific type of Black man in America, um, especially at a predominantly white institution as a professor. So yeah, those two books speak to me. Um, the Angry Ones by John A. Williams, um, that came out, you know, many uh, decades ago, but he he's talking about what it's like to be the only one and yeah, those are, those are just a couple books that uh, are definitely in conversation with Black Book and that I'm happy to have read. I love that. And then um, who's the coolest person to you that's expressed interest or excitement or you know that's read the book? Fortunately, there have been a couple, but it's hard for me to not say who I'm about to say, <laughs> especially because we're friends now. And he has been a, a, a real source of guidance and brotherhood for me. But Jay Ellis... Mm. So Jay Ellis, who um, is most 
well known for playing Lawrence on Insecure. Um, we uh, began a dialogue last year after someone passed him the book. Mm. And over the past year, he has been nothing but a great friend to me. We've met up in person a few times. Um, I can call him. I can text him whenever I want. And it's never an intrusion. And he does the same and he checks in. Um, but I will say, you know, when he reached out and he was like, yo, man, I really like your book. Congrats. I was like, hold up. Lawrence? What the? And, and then and then and then I spoke to him on the phone shortly after. And I was like, yeah, this guy is cool as hell. And he does the work behind the scenes to usher in um, black and brown creatives and artists. So shout out to Jay Ellis, man. Love you, brother. Out. Love that. Okay, last one. If you could have one person dead or alive, read this book, who would you pick? What? What? <laughs> That's tough. Dead or alive. Huh. Malcolm X. Okay. It's okay. tough. There's so many. There are so many. But I I mean, I'd love to see what he thinks. If he's yeah. like, yo, man, like this, that, and the other isn't working for me. Or if he's like, yo, you know, I understand the 21st century is a lot different than what it was like for me back then. And you gotta you gotta rework your your strategies for reworked right. racism. Then, you know, I don't know. I'm just so curious about what he would think, but but many people. I wonder what Oprah thinks too. Shout out to Oprah. I bet Oprah has feelings that I would not agree with. I don't think Oprah's read the book. Um, she probably doesn't like that line about Steve Harvey, but Oprah, <laughs> if you ever read this book and you hear the Stacks podcast, shout out to you. Yeah, Oprah. And please, if you're listening, I have a space for you on the podcast whenever <laughs> you'd like to come on. We can talk books. We'll bring we can... Stedman too. Yeah, Gail, yeah. anyone you want. We can bring Barack if you want to bring your friend from Chicago. Like, it's fine, whatever. No, fuck that. This is about you, Mateo, star of today's episode. Um, I will pander to Oprah another time. But mm. Mateo's book, Black Buck, is out now in the world. You can get it wherever you get your podcast. I do want to do one quick shout out, which is mm. I listened to a big chunk of this book on audio. And your mm. audio book is one of the best fiction books on audio. Your reader is phenomenal. Zeno Robinson. My man yes. held it down. It's so good. And so for folks who maybe pick up the physical copy of the book and you're having a hard time getting into the humor, just try listening to some of it to get a tone because I think that the reader does such a good job of ushering in that sense of humor and the joy that we talked about and the intensity in a way that's really accessible. So if you pick mm -hmm. it up and you're sort of like, I'm not getting it, Try switching to audio, even just for a few chapters to kind of get that um, that vibe, because I think he does mm -hmm. just such a good job. But Knock again, the book the is called Black Buck. It is out there. Go get it. Mateo, thank you so much for being on the stacks today. Uh, Tracy, thank you for having me. It's a dream come true. Yay. And everyone else, we will see you in the stacks. Thank you to Mateo for being our guest and thank you to Taryn Roeder for helping coordinate this interview. Remember, the Stacks Book Club pick for February is The New Wilderness by Diane Cook. We will be joined by Van Newkirk for that discussion on Wednesday, February 24th. Please make sure you're subscribed to the Stacks wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're listening through Apple Podcasts, take a moment to leave a rating and a review. For more from the Stacks, follow us on social media at the Stacks Pod on Instagram and at the Stacks Pod underscore on Twitter. And check out the website, thestackspodcast.com. Sebastian Alcala is our sound editor and producer. Our graphic designer is Robin McCrite, and our theme music is from Tagiragis. The Stacks is created and produced by me, Tracy Thomas.
Look around. You can find cars like these on Auto Trader, like that car riding your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on Auto Trader too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on Auto Trader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader.